Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe DeVader. And I'm Peter Spezia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first for our two games this week is 2012's Hotline Miami, the indie top-down shooter known for its pixelated ultraviolence and its synthwave soundtrack. Following that is the third entry in the world's most famous Dollhouse Simulator series of games, where players are just as likely to either fulfill their career dreams than they are to burn down the house on accident. 2009's The Sims 3. On accident. <laughs> and it is those deaths in creative ways that ties our two games together this week. A great theme. Kudos to you. Granted, this is another week where, like, we could not have picked more different games if we tried. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as far as what you do in the games or even the soundtracks are thoroughly different. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's good to have <laughs> some nice thread there. Uh, Joe, the, the COVID times continue. How are you doing? I am very quickly, some might say too quickly, approaching the end of school. It's coming at me fast. Well, congratulations. I hope it's all going well with a final capstone projects and the like. Um, and wow, I think you'll be, you'll have it behind you and it'll feel great. That's what I'm hoping. The capstone has been very, very stressful recently, but uh, I believe like a week from when this episode goes out is probably when friends are going to have like playable builds of the game to test. And that's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Very cool. Very cool. Absolutely. So uh, before we get into talking about our games this week, let's talk about some of those composer follow-up headlines. The composers we've talked about on the show, they still keep working. They still make great things. And so we'd like to talk about some of the things that we've covered before and following up and where are they now? Uh, we mentioned the Bandcamp fee waiver uh, being waived once before, and it was like a 24-hour period where any additional fees on Bandcamp were waived. And then on the show, we were also wondering, like, oh, why is it just 24 hours? It should be more, maybe a week. Well, Bandcamp is doing this again on the first Friday of the next three months. So unfortunately, May 1st has already passed. So on June 5th and July 3rd, the Bandcamp fees will be waived once again. So if you'd like to get video game music while paying uh, some of these composers, you're certainly welcome to do so then. Yes, and you should absolutely do it. Um, I have been, like, trying to remember to mention when a soundtrack that I talk about is on Bandcamp. I don't think I've done a great job at that, personally. <laughs> it's something that I need to improve on. But yeah, uh, good on Bandcamp for doing this. I think this is a, a great way to go about it. Uh, I still feel like they're, they could potentially do more, but I'm not going to fault them. I'm not... Perfection is the enemy of of progress, you know, that kind of thing. I think this is great, and kudos to them. Meanwhile, over at Materia Collective, which is a video game music record label, they release a lot of albums, video game adjacent, both soundtracks, uh, I believe they have done some remix albums, stuff like that. They 
released a Stay Home and Play Music Sheet Music Bundle, which includes sheet music for music from Undertale, Stardew Valley, Celeste, and Hollow Knight. Always super cool. You always love to see, like, sheet music being released from, from really great soundtracks. Like, when I was in orchestra in school, you couldn't find sheet music for anything video game related. And so, to see, like, more of this, it's just like when they released some of the Cuphead sheet music earlier, mm. uh, or later last year. Like, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool stuff. I, I hope more companies do this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, good to see tracks like Undertale and Battle Against a True Hero represented from Undertale. It's only like six songs total, but it's it's nice to see a good collection of games that we've already talked about on the show. Always good to see. Speaking of another game we've talked about on the show, Stardew Valley is getting a CD of possible orchestration versions of its music. Uh, so the group VGM Classics is putting together a Kickstarter to put together an orchestration CD for music from Stardew Valley. If that interests you, give that a, a Google search and check that out. So VGM Classics on Kickstarter, the Stardew Valley Orchestra CD. Yeah, I'm uh, very interested in that, though I am probably not going to back it myself because I've already backed a Kickstarter in the past month and I should probably hold off personally. Uh, and lastly, Funimation, which is not a name that we talk about on this show, ever, uh, brought together over 40 musicians and guests to take part in a cover of Cowboy Bebop's The Real Folk Blues, which, funnily enough, we have talked about on this show. Hmm. We did. Uh, including Kevin Pankin, who we talked about for his work on Florence, and also included the work of Yoko Kano herself and the seatbelts. All proceeds from the track, including purchase and streaming, go directly to COVID-19 relief charities. That's so cool. Such a great song. I know uh, Steve Bloom, the voice actor for Spike Spiegel in the English dub, is involved in the music video somehow. It's It sounds like a really, really great project. Go check that out for sure. Let's talk about our first game this week. And we're going to get to the... Uh, the gritty 80s ultraviolence of Hotline Miami before we get into some lighter, more fun, but also twisted fare. <laughs> so Hotline Miami released on PC on October 23rd, 2012. PS3 and Vita got a version on June 25th, 2013. Then a PS4 version arrived on August 19th, 2014. Nintendo Switch got the game on August 19th, 2019, and most recently, Xbox One got the game on April 7th, 2020. So this is a game that's pretty much available now on all current platforms. I can't miss this one, honestly. It's a, it's a cult indie classic at this point, I would say. It's developed by Denaton Games and published by Devolver Digital. Hotline Miami is a top-down, 8-bit-inspired, I would say, shooter. Uh, maybe maybe a bit between 8 and 16-bit. It's a, it's a very heavily pixelated uh, art style as far as the actual gameplay goes. But a top-down shooter where these floor layouts are littered with enemies and their respective weapons. The idea is for 
most, if not all of your enemies, one shot kills them. But also one shot kills you. So you have to plan the perfect run around this floor and move on. Whether you start with a weapon or it's, you know, find a weapon there. Uh, strategize. You're going to come across some cheap deaths, trial and error, figure out that perfect run, move on to the next floor. Uh, you'll find key items, you'll defeat bosses, and even find additional animal masks because your character can wear different animal masks that provide different special perks. There was a review, a discussion about Hotline Miami that I think to sum up what the aesthetic of the game is, I think kind of put it perfectly, quote, Hotline Miami is a pixelated, ultra-violent, surreal thriller and score attack game, rich with pulsing dream imagery, mythic coked-out 80s Miami aesthetics, Lynchian mystery, and laser-colored viscera. Yeah, that describes Hotline Miami pretty well. So what is the plot? Well, it is Miami in 1989, and you are the protagonist who wears a Letterman jacket. So the game's cult fans have dubbed this character as Jacket. So one day, Jacket receives an answering machine message about a supposed delivery of cookies to his home, only to find a package outside containing a rooster mask and instructions to perform a hit on the Russian mafia and steal a briefcase in their possession, uh, threatening that Jacket is being watched and, quote, failure is not an option. The requests keep coming, so Jacket must perform more hits. Throughout the game, Jacket has visions where he is confronted over his actions by three masked figures, the cryptic rooster-masked Richard, the hostile owl-masked Rasmus, and the sympathetic horse-masked Don Juan. How deep do the Mafia's ties run? And why does Jacket's perception become increasingly surreal? Joe, this is where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Hotline Miami? Basically nothing. I am aware of its existence because it is one of, it's one of those games that's like top-tier, iconic indie games, just in general. But I have never played it. Uh, until today, I had never heard any of the soundtrack. Oh, what a treat for you. And so that's, that's basically it. I know of the animal masks thing. I know how it plays. I know nothing else. I've never touched it. I'm pretty sure I've owned it for years, but just never, never really felt the need to go play it. And having played games that are not really similar but like the whole top down thing having played games like that since and not enjoying basically any of them i don't know if i'd enjoy hotline miami but i mean i liked katana zero and katana zero is very usually like referred to as 2d hotline miami so who knows yeah, basically, like, side-scrolling Hotline Miami is Katana Zero uh, from, from last year. Yeah, uh, Hotline Miami is a game I own on PC, and I have the PS3 Vita version. I think that was cross-buy. So I've played it on Vita. I only got so far. Like, I did I put an hour or two in. 
it's not that long of a game. It's like five to seven hours. Um, and I feel like it felt really good on Vita. But like you, I uh, struggle with the idea of the top-down concept. I'm not that good of it. It does throw a lot of cheap, surprising deaths your way. And it's trying to force you to push through and have like the violence be the carrot on the stick in the, a way. Uh, so the gameplay didn't necessarily gel with me. Uh, I, I know a lot of people really enjoy this game. It is a big cult hit for a reason. Uh, you're right. It is one of those seminal early 2010s indie games that just really was a big success. Uh, but for me, it's the soundtrack. Like this is one game I've been itching to talk about with the soundtrack and wondering how to do it because it's not just one composer. Uh, now that our uh, kind of rules for what we're covering and as far as composers, uh, now that that's kind of loosened, I feel like this is a good time to bring it up. Uh, it's it's this excellent synthwave soundtrack that it's it speaks so well to me and it fits so well in the context of the game. For how popular Hotline Miami is in this this kind of cult. Uh, sort of following, I couldn't find all that much on its development. So, to me, if we're the quicker we get to the music, I'm I'm totally good with that. So, the game was designed by Jonathan Soderstrom and Dennis Wedden, who, when you kind of combine their names together with Dan and Jonathan, they become Denaton Games. Uh, this game acted as a spiritual successor to Soderstrom's unreleased game called Super Carnage, which he called a game where it's, he tried to make the goriest game he possibly could with as many weapons as possible in this top-down perspective. And he made this game, Super Carnage, that again didn't get released, at age 18. So he, he partnered with Dennis and they made this game kind of based on that, and Dennis really liked how the, the game played, and they kind of formulated this idea, and Hotline Miami became their first commercial game release, their first game that they sold for money, as opposed to just free games online. Hotline Miami is definitely inspired uh, by Nicholas Wending Refn's 2011 neo-noir crime film Drive, like a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> as well as the 2006 documentary Cocaine Cowboys. Uh, other influences include David Lynch for the uh, puzzling plot elements. Gordon Freeman as a silent protagonist, you know, taken from Half-Life. And also the movie Kick-Ass, where the idea of putting on a mask and being able to do you know, crazy things and hiding your identity through it all. I would say that Hotline Miami is what ultimately and arguably propelled Devolver Digital into becoming a prominent indie publishing brand. Like, had you really heard of Devolver before that game? No, I can't really say I have. And even today, despite the fact that Devolver publishes a lot of stuff, um, and most of it fantastic stuff, they are still kind of known as, oh, they're the guys that published Hotline Miami. Their mm -hmm. name is more associated with this game than Denaton, I feel like. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like a lot of people just go directly to Devolver uh, with this one, but not so. Uh, also, it was noted in uh, research that Hotline Miami has been, quote, torrented to such a staggering level, especially because of the game's small file size. That is, unfortunately, another connection between our two games. Hmm, <laughs> I, I can totally see that being a, a thread there for sure. Um, but for this one in particular, uh, the team at Denetton tried to put out a patch that fixed a lot of problems and a way to try to encourage players to like buy the actual release because it's the one that's being fixed. And unfortunately that wasn't really the case yet. The game was reviewed very well. Uh, I'd say with a Metacritic score of 85, definitely some critical acclaim there, uh, the presentation of the game and the soundtrack are especially highlights there. Uh, game Informer had one of the more critical reviews, though, uh, saying with its subheading that it's, quote, a demented tour through the mind of a killer uh, that has clunky controls and cheap deaths. Which, which I, I kind of get it, but a lot of people think the aesthetics really push it through and then the gameplay is so viscerally rewarding in its pixelated style uh, of a way yet despite all of those those piracy there uh, especially in those early 2010s ages of indie games uh, the game sold very well 130,000 copies of hotline miami had been sold within its first seven weeks of launch today steam spy estimates that the game has about two to five million users that own the game on steam now, that could be through things like Humble Bundles and things like that. Uh, but for a first commercial release from two guys trying to make a game inspired by a game that one of them tried to make at 18 years old, pretty good, honestly. But Hotline Miami was not an award darling by any means. Uh, it won awards like Best PC Sound from IGN. <laughs> Uh, while being nominated for other awards like Best Overall Game. So, I mean, that outlet at least recognized it. Uh, PC Gamer also awarded the game the Best Music of the Year 2012. The soundtrack is really good. You'll hear it shortly, I promise. Uh, but the game certainly did well enough to warrant a sequel called Hotline Miami 2 Wrong Number, which was released on March 10th, 2015. These games are often bundled together in the Hotline Miami collection, which is generally how the game is released recently, especially in including a Nintendo Switch. So I think Hotline Miami would be a good Switch game. If that's something you're ever interested in picking up, if it sounds interesting. The team of composers behind Hotline Miami is, is very vast. And when trying to think of one to pick out and isolate and talk about, uh, I went with Steven Gillard. Steven Gillard, uh, not given a birth date or a year on the internet, but he seems to be a relatively younger individual. Uh, born in Boston, Massachusetts, around that area, but he currently lives in Los Angeles. He goes by the stage name of Moon. Now, sometimes there are periods after those, M-O-O-N. Sometimes there are vertical bars in between or just spaces between 
those letters. But he is the nephew of James Murphy of LCD Sound System. His first exposure to electronic music, because uh, he is an electronic musician, but that first exposure to that style of music was through Daft Punk. And this led him down a path of more French electronic music, including Justice, Ed Banger, I'm going to guess if it's French, and Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, including some others. However, Stephen Gillard says, quote, I'm not trained other than a few years of middle school band. I can't really play an instrument, and I don't know shit about music theory. <laughs> a lot of the reason my stuff was so minimal and loopy, especially at the beginning, was simply because I didn't know how to do anything more complicated than that. I've obviously learned a lot more since, which has led to a bit of a complicated relationship with my older stuff. So, Stephen Gillard, as Moon, created a YouTube channel in late 2011 for his music. And he put out this, like, four-song sample of his music. And all four of those songs are in Hotline Miami. And, yeah, some of them may be, okay, considered a little simpler, a little loopy. But, man, if they aren't catchy as heck. Uh, you'll, you'll hear a couple of them later. Uh, it's, it's so, so good. But then he developed his talents a little bit more. And then when it came to his 2017 album, Clinically Blasé, he identified that as his last release as Moon. When it came to his future, he said, quote, It's the deviation from the straight ahead that interests me. But then you just go back to his description on that 2011 YouTube channel. He says, quote, I make music I want to listen to. You might like it too. So Moon, Steven Gillard, uh, really only worked on Hotline Miami 1 and 2 as far as games. Yeah, he put out a couple albums of his own music, but not really much of a career there, which is crazy. I would have thought like he would have been a bigger name, not someone who already like seems to have washed his hands of the moon title. Like he had a Twitter account on his, his website and that Twitter account no longer exists. Like it's unusual. I'm sure he's doing other great things, uh, but wow. Uh, just one of the many uh, composers on the hotline Miami soundtrack, 22 tracks on that soundtrack, including contributions from composers such as coconuts, Eric Shirk, Jasper Byrne, Moon, Perturbator, Scattle, and Sun Ara. The soundtrack was first made available on Devolver Digital's SoundCloud account, of all places, and it's also sold through Steam, but if you go through the game's file folders, you can also find these songs from the soundtrack in .ogg Vorbis format, in case that's of interest to you. So, what does the Hotline Miami soundtrack sound like? Let's get into all of its synth-wavy goodness in the five critical tracks. And we'll start with the first critical track, Paris. Thank you. 
So Paris here is composed by Moon, aka Steven Gillard. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it in that if he was inspired by French electronic music, yeah, there's nothing really Paris-related, I would say, in Hotline Miami. But, you know, if, if that's where his kind of his roots come from, being inspired by electronic music, then, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect title. In the game, this is the level music for the levels The Metro and Tension. And it's just this really dark groove that, again, may seem simple and loopy. But, like, it's just so perfect for this violence that you're enacting in Hotline Miami. Uh, eventually, the track, based on the clip, adds even more layers later, like a higher-pitched saw, and uh, there's even a vocal sample in there. Uh, but it's just a nice dark groove here. I love it. I think dark groove is the best description you possibly could have come up with for this song. It's it's really, really catchy. It kind of sounds like something that I might hear in like a club in a really dark cyberpunk sci-fi club almost. Mm -hmm. And you can you can definitely see where Katana Zero would have pulled like some of its some of its inspiration from, because there are a couple of songs in Katana Zero that sound very similar to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, shouts out to Mega64's Hotline Miami video. One of my favorites among all of theirs. Uh, it's, it's such a good one. But also, like, this song is prominently featured uh, in that one. Uh, in that, that little vocal sample is Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. Like, it's, it's really neat. It's just a cool, cool piece. But yet it gets cooler still. Number two on the Critical Five. This is Hydrogen. This one is also composed by Moon, Steven Gillard. This is from the levels Decadence, Neighbors, and Deadline in the game. I have played a lot of music through my car, like on, on drives and whatnot. And I hope you're listening to this in a good listening environment, because I have never had a track bump the bass so much have the subwoofer get a good working than this song here like it's impressive for whatever reason uh, it's, it's the the thud the thump of the bass uh in this one and it's it's so good to have just like surrounding you in your listening environment i i think some people may find the high-pitched repetitive synth a little tiring and that's fine uh, for just like a listen. But let me tell you, like in a gameplay setting, it works so well and it cuts through. It's almost like 
I would almost equate it to like a, a nagging, like violent itch in a way. And so like something that you're scratching with the, the blast of, of gunfire as you're moving around this environment. I, I love this track in gameplay specifically. See, now when listening to this one for the first time today, I think this is the one that I found myself like tapping my foot to the most, more than anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Um, I think it's between this and the next one uh, as to my two favorites on your Critical 5, but like this is the one that got me moving. Like that that beat the the bass bumps like those are those are real strong and yeah I could see why people would find the like synth very repetitive but it's ridiculously catchy to me I love it I love this song this song is awesome mm-hmm. yeah definitely I think the standout from Steven Gillard on on this soundtrack for sure out of the four he contributed my favorite though is number three here on the Critical Five this is Knock Knock. Knock Knock is composed by Scattle, a.k.a. David Scatliff. This is the level music for Assault and Prank Call. I guess in the story, uh, this takes place during an assault that Jacket does on a police station as revenge after he like wakes up from a two-week coma and like his world is totally changed. And... This song plays, uh, as I said, like, yeah, my favorite song. I feel like if there was one song that I had to talk about from Hotline Miami, it would be this song. But do me a favor. If you have a way to play this song in your car, go for a drive at night. I know social distancing and all, it's, it's a little tough right now. But maybe you need to get out of the house. Go for a drive at night. Roll your windows down. Pump this up. You'll thank me later. This is a perfect, perfect night driving song. I could hear that. This is a completely different tone from the song before this, and even the song before that. This song feels like it would be playing during like a driving montage in a cyberpunk film, which I mean takes it back to night driving. I had heard the title Knock Knock before. In relation to Hotline Miami, but I had never heard the song. So it definitely lived up to the hype that I had heard in the past. That's that's definitely good to hear. And yeah, I think it's it's music like this where you pull it back to that that film drive with Ryan Gosling. And it's like, yeah, yeah, entirely that for sure. Number four is another one that's easily identified with this game. Number four is Deep Cover.
This one is composed by Sun Ara, aka Cameron Stallones. This is the theme that plays in Jacket's home. So some YouTube comments were amusing. Uh, one said, quote, waking up from the world's worst hangover or quote, depression the theme. And it's an odd piece, totally different than the, the bumping energy of some of these other synthwave tracks, but it has a like a languishness to it. Uh, like it's everything's stretched out, like times distorted, and, and you're still getting this thumping beat to it, just really slowly, like you know, like your head's pounding in a way. Uh, even like the the vocal samples in it too. Uh, it's a really interesting piece, very different than I think anything on the Critical Five here, but it's an important one after you're like waking up on a new day as jacket and like this song is an important one but it's just also one that like a lot of people play in relation to this game as like this is a very notable one so i really enjoy this one deep cover had to be here world's worst hangover and depression are very good parallels for this song because much like both of those things i don't like this song <laughs> hmm i don't like this song at all I think this is the only one um, where I went to listen to the full songs today for the first time. I couldn't even finish this song. <laughs> I couldn't. I made it about three minutes in. I was just like, I can't. I, I don't like it. It is a cacophony, which is really weird, right? Because usually I'm all over that kind of song. Like, right. I like Silent Hill. Like, come on. Uh, but I don't know. Something about this just does not click with me. I think it's the the distortion in the background that like distorted sort of sound to it. I don't know. I just don't dig it. I'm not a fan. That's interesting, and that's totally fine. Um, but I think people that know this soundtrack know, like, that's like, oh, this one's got to be here if you're talking about the most important songs. But that, yeah, that's always interesting when we find ones that were just like, mm, no, no, not not for me. <laughs> but that's cool. Number five on the Critical Five, wrapping it all up. This is Miami. Jasper Byrne has two tracks on this soundtrack. One of them is called Hotline. The other is called Miami. Uh, this is the score summary theme. So at the end of the level, when all is said and done for the multiple rooms that you've cleared, you see all your stats, and you go from the, like, the pumping darkness of some of these levels to everything's all nice and good. Hey! The slaughter is over. You can relax with like th this happy washing over you sort of tones. I think part of it, even near the end of the clip there, it kind of borrows a little bit of a leitmotif from Knock Knock with the da, 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 da. 
like a little bit of a melodic parallel there. I mean, because they're different composers, so that couldn't have been necessarily planned unless one was done way in advance. I don't know. It was just uh, something interesting I found uh, upon listening. Yeah, this is an 80s as hell song. <laughs> like, I think all of this, the whole soundtrack is very 80s, but I think this one is the most like in your face 80s of all of them. And yeah, this is, it's a really nice, relaxing song. Weird to talk about one of those in context of this game, but hey, takes all kinds. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I dig this. I'm a fan of this song. Absolutely. Let's go to our cutting room floor, though. I have two. The first one is called Daisuke. Daisuke is composed by El Huervo, a.k.a. Niklas Ackerblad. Uh, he also drew the cover art for this game with the three people in the animal masks. And you've got the one with the pig carrying the girl's bloody corpse and all the enemies around. Yeah, he drew that. He composes music. And he's also the inspiration like visually for the character Beard. But Daisuke in this sense is the shop theme for the game. And it just kind of makes you think of like, you're walking into like a cheap grocery store, <laughs> honestly. But it's like this, it's lounge jazz at the end of it with, with the piano going. I don't know. I need to say more. We love lounge jazz. It's also like, I hear this song and uh, man, I didn't expect today for, lo-fi hip-hop beats to relax and study to to show up on this show but here we are yeah totally totally one of those for sure but cranking it in the complete opposite direction this other one on the cutting room floor is miami disco So if we took like the happy feelings of that other Miami track, or at least the pleasant tonalities of it, but then we crank an intense, deep bass line behind it to really just crank up just the intensity, honestly, uh, to just make it feel like this brutal, action-filled track. Uh, yeah, you get Miami Disco. Composed by Perturbator, also known as, uh, this is James Kent. And James Kent was born in 1993, so he was 19 years old Ooh. when Hotline Miami launched. Always cool to uh, note when a younger person has contributed music to a video game, but then it also makes you wonder, what am I doing with my life? He's younger than both of us. <laughs> He's younger than yeah. me by one year. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Uh, always always so strange. Uh, Miami Disco is the level music for Push It and Highball. And wow. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you're listening to it on the soundtrack. And I'm like, oh, I, I got to put this somewhere. This is 
too good to not include. And and Perturbator has like this these really intense backing beats to it uh, that really. I wanted to try to highlight as many of these different composers as possible with their music uh, while still giving Steven Gillard his his credit there. But yeah, I feel like it covered a good range there. And this is yet another one of those songs where it's like, boy, you can see the Katana Zero, like where it, where the inspiration came from. Mm. You can absolutely tell that. I think this is probably, if, if we were to ask, though, who knows? I don't know. Um I imagine that this is probably one of the songs on the list that could have potentially inspired Ludovic when he did the soundtrack of that game. Entirely possible. I feel like we'll have to talk about Katana Zero eventually on this show. But here we go, talking about Hotline Mammy first, uh, giving kind of a foundation for some of these synthwave game tracks, especially uh, an indie legend, as you say. Like, it's a cult hit. But in 2012, like, this was it. It put Devolver on the map, and what will I never forget about the game? Yeah, honestly, not. I wasn't the biggest fan of the gameplay. It was fun for a little bit, but I wasn't uh, personally motivated to push through and see it to the end. But this soundtrack is so good, and I, I like so much of it. But when you pair it with the the viciousness, the brutality of the gameplay with the gunfire... It really just amplifies it all and just really pairs nicely like a fine wine. I may give Hotline Miami a shot at some point in the future, but I don't know. I don't feel like I'm in a rush to go play it. Granted, the soundtrack, uh, it's, it is one of those moments where I'm like, I kind of want to just play it for the soundtrack but I'm not sure I'd like it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, who knows? Maybe one day. Yeah, I would say try it on a handheld if you're curious. Whether that's Switch, whether it's something else. So to transition to our next game, I'd like to highlight a fan cover, a fan remix of a song, tracks from this game. Whether that's from YouTube, OC Remix, what have you. Uh, OC Remix found a track here from Dark Sim. He took Knock Knock and really amped up an EDM flair even more. Just kind of make it almost screaming in a way with some EDM beats. When you ask Knock Knock, you have to answer, who's there? Who's there from Dark Sim from OC Remix? Please enjoy. I think you'll really like it. And we'll be right back. Let's flip over into an entirely different sort of mood, tone, everything, really, if you really think about it. Except it is kind of top-down, sort of, mostly. You can go, like, over the shoulder and stuff, I think, but for the most part, like, when you're playing this game, it's top-down. We're talking about The Sims 3. Uh, But before we can talk about The Sims 3 specifically, we kind of have to talk about Maxis and the creation of The Sims in the first place. So Maxis was founded in 1987 by Will Wright and Jeff Braun, 
and their first release in 1989 was the wildly successful Sim City. Uh, in Sim City, you built and managed a city from the top-down view. It was a simulation city. Uh, from there, they basically just became the Sim Company because their titles were stuff like Sim Ant and Sim Farm and Sim Health and other games that had the word Sim in them. But none of them were really as successful as SimCity, and so they also kept releasing games under the SimCity name. Unfortunately, that success sort of seemed to come to an end in the late 90s with the commercial failure of games like SimCopter, which I told my roommate, and he got very sad because he's a big fan of SimCopter. And uh, that led to their acquisition by Electronic Arts in 1997. So their first title that they were able to finish under the new EA label, they were allowed to finish the game SimCity 3000, and then they decided to throw all of their effort into a specific game, mostly under the direction of Will Wright. And so that game ended up being something that was merely titled The Sims. It was described as a dollhouse game, where instead of managing an entire city, like in SimCity, you instead managed the daily lives of a single household. And this game, at the time, was apparently seen as a massive gamble. Uh, neither Maxis nor EA were very sure that The Sims would actually mesh very well with the video game market at the time, and boy, how wrong they were. <laughs> it's huge, it's huge. Because upon releasing in February 2000, The Sims was a runaway hit, especially with an ability to tap into the casual market, like specifically, which was something that up at that point hadn't really been courted all that much. Uh, like we look at the Wii in like the late 2000s, and that was a cool like casual market juggernaut, but before that, it was just kind of, they were, they were over there, and it was stuff like The Sims that gave them what they were looking for. So, The Sims was such a success that it spawned what is now one of the most influential and iconic simulation franchises in video games, as well as one of the most recognizable casual games in the world, with numerous expansions and sequels that have been put on just about every console and handheld imaginable. Sequels like... The Sims 3! So, Sims 3 was originally released for PC on June 2nd, 2009 in North America, June 4th in Europe and Australia, and June 5th in the United Kingdom. Uh, it would also release on mobile on June 2nd of 2009, and then it would jump to the Xbox 360, the PlayStation 3, and the Nintendo DS in October of 2010, weird mix there, with a Wii release in November of 2010, and then it was also released on the Nintendo 3DS in March of 2011, which I actually did not know that Sims 3 came out on either DS or 3DS. I had forgotten this as well. So, The Sims 3, much like the rest of the series, is a life simulation dollhouse game where the player is put in the position of managing the life of a household containing anywhere from 1 to 8 Sims, which are what the people of this world are called. This family can be completely customized from how they look, to how they dress, to even what their personality is like, and how they're related to each other. 
Uh, the player can also build and customize the home that their Sims live in, working towards creating their ideal house by sending their Sims off to work in order to make money. Or if you're like me and most other players, by cheating and giving yourself a bunch of simoleons for free. Uh, this money can then be used to build walls and floors, as well as buy furniture for their Sims to use and food for their Sims to eat. Now, unfortunately, Sims are incredibly stupid <laughs> and will basically not do any of the things they should be doing unless you specifically tell them to do those things. Do they need to eat? They're not going to eat unless you tell them to, or if they're about to die. Do they need to go to the bathroom? Uh, I mean, you didn't tell them to go to the bathroom, and the video games are right there. They have free will, but uh, they will basically use this free will to screw around while ignoring basic needs like food, money, sleep, or even having to go to the bathroom. This makes managing your Sims' day-to-day -day life even more important. Because they are explicitly not going to do it themselves, and if you leave them to their own devices, they will die. So, from there, Sims can age, die, whether it be of old age or other causes. Uh, they can get sad, they can build careers, they can fall in and out of love. The whole gamut of human experience is available for your Sims to go through. And that's honestly really all there is to it. In terms of new features that set Sims 3 apart, from its predecessors, uh, there are actually three big ones. The first is the Create a Style tool, which allowed players to apply any pattern they liked to any clothing or furniture, and even completely customize the different colors in that pattern with a color picker tool. This, along with the higher emphasis on encouraging the modding community that Max has tried to really push for in this title, meant that Sims 3 had more customization options than ever before. Uh, also, Sims could have specific personality quirks, like artistic or kleptomaniac, instead of how the previous games did it, which were just a slider that decided how nice they were, or how clean they were, and stuff like that. And that's basically how you decided their personality back then. Now you have, like, these traits that will give them specific goals in life, and change how they react and interact with other sims it's very cool and the last one is the addition of the seamless open world which eliminated loading zones between lots which meant that you could actually look at other houses in the neighborhood and in the town and see the sims in those houses doing their own stuff so this is where i will ask what are your experiences with the sims 3 or the Sims in general, honestly. Never played The Sims at all. Uh, the idea of the omnipotence does not necessarily appeal to me. Uh, but I will share an interesting story of uh, one of my roommates back in college who had The Sims 3 when it launched. And we, you know, spent launch day I just watching him create a character and all that. Eventually, uh, he built up his character to be uh, a politician and he was, you know, the politician was old and whatnot and he was married and life was all good. Uh, but then the secretary or maid, it might've been the maid, whatever, you know, came around and, oh, she was a hot young thing. <laughs> they were flirting and all their, their simlish and whatnot, the little language that they have there. And so he was like, all right, I'm going to leave my wife 
I'm going to get married to the maid and life will be great. I, I got the little, have this hot young new thing on my sim arm. It all happens. The two get married. They come home from the honeymoon or whatever. And immediately the young maid is old. <laughs> Don't know how it happened. A uh, roommate was not pleased. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So on my end, uh, I actually grew up playing The Sims, um, but not in the place you would expect. I played it in the worst possible place, being when my sister and I were children, we played a lot of a game called The Sims Bustin' Out on the PlayStation 2. And if you ask any Sims player, playing The Sims on a console back then was a sin. Uh, they, it was just, they were gimped versions of those games, but we enjoyed busting out. So when Sims 2 came out, we also got that for PlayStation 2, and we played a ton of that as well. Uh, and then Sims 3, I just never bought when it came out, ever, until like a couple years ago, I ended up buying Sims 3, and I, I have loaded it up a couple of times. The most notable time was when I made The Florge House where I took eight of our friends, including myself, and made us. Uh, I don't remember who everybody was, but basically it, this became a thing where I was like, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave them to their own devices. <laughs> and every month of in-game time, we are going to vote on who is leaving the Florge house in a violent manner. <laughs> And so it just became like, by the time I stopped doing it, uh, every bathroom in the house was broken because nobody would fix it or call somebody to fix it. Uh, we were out of money because nobody would get a job. The food was running low. And half of the appliances in the house were also broken. None of the beds were made. And I think three people were removed from the house, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> uh so that was a really fun thing and i should probably get back to that uh it was the most fun part though was making friends in the sims because it's just it's incredible how close you can get the character creator is top notch it is top tier uh, i've never played the sims 4 don't really have much interest in playing the sims 4 right now maybe one day when it gets good but yeah I love The Sims. I think it's very fun and a good time killer. So, let's talk about some of the development of The Sims 3. And uh, honestly, not a lot I could find about the development of the game, despite the fact that there is a, like, five-minute behind-the-scenes video about the development of the game, where two of the things I found in that video that I found very interesting were, one, in order to make the animations of the game look good, uh, if you've ever seen Sims do anything ever, they're very exaggerated movement and, and cartoony and all that. Uh, in order to make those look the way they wanted, animators would actually go out into the hallway and film themselves doing those movements over and over again in increasingly outlandish and exaggerated ways until they had something that they liked. And then they would take it back into the office and they would animate it from that. Uh, 
And also, one of the team's major goals with the game was apparently to make sure that the game felt like your story was part of a much larger story, and make it feel more like you were part of a populated and living neighborhood or city more so than the previous games had felt like. So, I'd say that overall, they did succeed at both of those things. I did find a lot, however, on the marketing and build-up to the release of Sims 3, and some of it is pretty wild, so please join me on this journey. EA announced the existence of The Sims 3 in March of 2008, and in January of 2009, they invited what they considered some of the best modders and custom content creators from the internet to what they called a creator's camp. And these creators spent an entire week on Maxis's Redwood Shores campus, playing the game and creating custom Sims and houses, which were then used to populate the Sims 3 Exchange at launch. The Sims 3 Exchange was a service where players could upload their creations and other players could download them. And I think that is a really cool way of making sure that that service is has like stuff on it at launch instead of just like hitting the random generator and throwing that on there to start. Yeah, especially with good content from creators that care. Yeah, uh, I think that was a really neat idea. Now let's get into some of the weirder stuff. Uh, in the build-up to the game's release, EA created a series of online experiences on the game's official website, such as Sim Friend, in which people could choose a sim who would email them throughout the day. or Sim Sidekick, which allowed users to, quote, surf the web with a sim. Who allowed old people to make decisions? I don't know what surf the web with a sim means. I could not find clarification. You know what the kids do these days? They surf the web with their friends. What if... A sim could do that with them. Oh my gosh. What if we had a sim and he emailed the kids multiple times in a single day? That's not creepy, right? This game's gonna sell like hotcakes. It, it did. It did sell like hotcakes, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, one of the game's marketing strategies seemed to be creating a trailer... That was a comedic parody of the 2008 presidential election, featuring candidates Barack Obama and John McCain in sim form, as well as their running mates, Joe Biden and Sarah Palin. You know, when elections weren't terrifying. Because when I think of The Sims, I think of Barack Obama. I mean, when I think of Barack Obama and Joe Biden, I think of their inclusion in NBA Jam, but that's just me. <laughs> I think that is a much more, I don't want to say grounded because it's NBA Jam, but also <laughs> that makes sense. It's a more grounded thing to think about in relation to them and video games. <laughs> uh, EA apparently also spent an estimated $10 billion a month. I I'm sorry, did you say billion with a B? Yeah, I said billion with a B a month to place large banners and billboards in various places such as Times Square. And this began in April of 2009, 
And if you're keeping score, the game came out in June of 2009. So that's at least $20 billion. But seeing as it didn't say two months in the article I read, it was probably closer to like $30 to $40 billion. Must be nice to have money. Oh boy. Other weird marketing stunts for the game included peppering it into a story in an episode of the show One Tree Hill. (laughs) And there was also a promotional CD given out at Target that came with a $5 off coupon for the game and a download of the game's main theme. But this preview CD is the weirdest part because it had a menu in which create a sim and create a house were present, but there was no gameplay on it. According to Wikipedia, quote, There is no actual gameplay involved, but it describes what playing feels like. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. What? What? You know what would sell me on a game? Is if I was given a CD at Target that told me what playing the game felt like. Look, I I bet it's one of those things, it's like you pop in your computer and it'll visually tell you, but I would also be totally down for an audio CD where you put it in and it's like... (laughs) Look, man, you just go through the menus, man, and then you, you choose, you, you have your options for hair, and it's like, do you want long hair, do you want short hair, and it's like, oh, man, cool. Are you brown, blonde, red, uh, you, you, you just pick whatever. And it's just like this guy just droning on, like on and on. <laughs> At some point, he just like trails off and is like obviously concentrating on playing the game and has forgotten that he's recording, <laughs> and, and then picks up a like, oh, uh, and then you got the shirts and... Yeah, <laughs> my shirt has like a has like a parrot on it, and it's uh, trust me, it looks great. That's what I imagine, <laughs> but I know it's just visual. Click, click, click around. I don't know. No, that's the new canon. That's what that's what it was. Uh, the game was originally set to actually release in February of two thousand nine, but when it was clear that the game would not be in a workable state by then and needed a bit more polish, it was delayed to its eventual June release date. But unfortunately, this left plenty of time for disaster to strike, because two weeks before the game's scheduled release, an unauthorized copy leaked onto the internet, and players found it to be a buggy and unfinished mess despite the delay. Uh, EA would later say that the leaked version was a pre-release version that did not reflect the game that was about to be shipped, and uh, this incident is largely credited for the fact that reportedly, The Sims 3 had a higher piracy rate than Maxis's previous title, Spore, which I believe up to that point had held the record for most pirated game. That sounds right, yeah. And I also think Spore might have taken that back <laughs> since, <laughs> since then. I think it is still the most pirated game, but apparently Sims 3 gave it a run for its money, particularly because of this leaked version. But despite all this, Sims 3 was reviewed very well upon release. It currently has a Metacritic sitting at 86. And according to EA, the game sold 1.4 million copies in its first week at the time, making it the company's most successful PC launch ever. And Maxis would go on to produce 11 expansion packs for The Sims 3, being World Adventures, Ambitions, Late Night, Generations, Pets, Showtime, Supernatural, Seasons, University Life, Island Paradise, and Into the Future, with that last one releasing in October of 2013. 
and they would also produce and release nine stuff packs, which added things like furniture, clothing, and hairstyles. Uh, of course, support for The Sims 3 largely ended in 2014 because another sequel released being The Sims 4. And that is the story of The Sims 3, which I found very interesting, and I, I'm really happy with all the things I found on that game. I was very worried about talking about this game, because I didn't know how the hell that was going to go. <laughs> I'm more amazed that you picked it for its soundtrack, though. It's certainly an interesting soundtrack. I have a soft spot for it, and I'm not entirely sure why. It is not one that I would put among my favorites but I enjoy listening to it every once in a while. And that soundtrack was done by Steve Jablonski. So Steve Jablonski, uh, in direct opposite of you, I was able to find his birthday, but not where he was born. Hmm. Uh, he was born October 9th, 1970. And he attended the University of California at Berkeley, where he started his first year studying computer science. And then I guess kind of figured that was not for him. So... Uh, as of his second year, he switched his major to music composition. And then after he graduated, according to him, he just decided to cold call, out of the blue, a company called Remote Control Productions, which was owned by one Hans Zimmer. Mm. And that must have been one really impressive phone call, even though he describes it as he called them and asked if they needed any help. Uh, he was given an internship at the studio, and it was there that he met Harry Gregson Williams and began to work as his assistant. And eventually he would also build a stronger professional relationship with Zimmer himself, which would open him up to several bigger opportunities all across the entertainment industry. And as far as I can tell, he is currently still employed at Remote Control Productions. Oh, good for him. That's awesome. So he has quite the discography, not really in video games, though he has done a good amount of video games, but he is kind of an all-arounder. Uh, in film, I happen to find two distinct categories of films that he has done soundtracks for, one of them being horror movies, where he has done the soundtrack for 2003's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as well as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Beginning, 2005's The Amityville Horror, 2009's Friday the 13th, and 2010's A Nightmare on Elm Street. So if he can just do a Halloween movie, he will have the trifecta, in my mind. And he has also worked a lot with director Michael Bay, where he has done the soundtrack for The Island, every Transformers film except for the first one, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows, the second one, and then there's a bunch of, like, miscellaneous movies that he was the head composer for, such as Battleship, Ender's Game, Keanu, Skyscraper, and most recently, uh, the Vin Diesel film Bloodshot. And this is not all of the films he has done. These are just the ones that have names that I recognize. Uh, he also is credited with providing additional music for Armageddon, Ants, The Tigger Movie, Chicken Run, Pearl Harbor, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, and Bad Boys 2. So that's a heck of a film discography from the start. He also has done music for a lot of television shows, though the only one on the list that really had a name that I recognized is Desperate Housewives, 
which he did music for 157 episodes of. Good for him. Wow. The rest of the shows on his list seem to be various documentary series from different channels like the BBC and History Channel and Nat Geo and stuff like that. But then when it comes to video games, he is credited with having provided additional music for Metal Gear Solid 2, which is where the Harry Gregson William part comes in. Uh, He did the music for Command & Conquer 3, Tiberium Wars. For Transformers games, he did three of them, being Transformers the Game, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, and Transformers Rise of the Dark Spark. He, most notably, I think, in the grand scheme of video games, he's most known for having done the soundtracks to Gears of War 2, 3, and Judgment. Yeah, I think that's where I've heard his name from, and I'm amazed that he's done this much more. Wow. And he also did the soundtrack for Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands. So yeah, he's got a heck of a diverse sort of portfolio there. (laughs) But he hasn't seemed to have done any video games for a very long time. I think 2014 was the last year in which he had a video game credited to him. So he might have left that industry for the most part. Who knows? In terms of actual historical development research for The Sims 3 specifically, Uh, The soundtrack for this game was recorded with the Hollywood Studio Symphony on 20th Century Fox's Newman Scoring Stage, and it was recorded involving a 40-piece string and woodwind orchestra, as well as a live choir. For The Sims. For The Sims. (laughs) Like, what? Uh... While Jablonski composed the main soundtrack of the game, music that plays on the in-game stereos, or is played by The Sims on in-game instruments, were composed by artists like Daryl Brown, Rebecca Maulion, Pepino de Agostino, among others. Uh, And EA also apparently partnered with multiple big music artists to get them to record their songs in Simlish. These artists included... Katy Perry, The Flaming Lips, Depeche Mode, Flo Rida, and more. Uh, Katy Perry is the only one that I was aware of before this, because I think she's also like the main figure of one of the expansions, Mm. or at least one of the stuff packs. I don't remember. I don't think I own that one, so I don't really care. And Flo Rida will do whatever for a paycheck, so that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Two official releases of this soundtrack happened. One was the original soundtrack, and the other was Stereo Jams, which was the aforementioned songs that play on the in-game stereos and such. I also saw multiple YouTube comments claim that the soundtrack of this game is regularly used in TV shows like Impractical Jokers, which I cannot confirm because I do not watch that show, nor do I really have any interest in watching that show, but... After a couple weeks ago, learning about Sly 2's soundtrack being in a Netflix show. I mean, anything sounds plausible at this point. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's always weird to see certain tracks like the, these uh, you know, pop up wherever. So, for our five critical tracks this week, I want to take you through a little journey through the gameplay loop of The Sims, because that just made the most sense to me. So, come with me on this journey, shall we? Obviously, the first step before you do anything in a game of The Sims is to actually load up The Sims 3, at which point you will hear The Sims theme.
So this is my favorite song in the game, which doesn't say much, because again, I mean, it's a good soundtrack, but it's nothing blow you away. But uh, I, I really enjoy this song because it feels bombastic, almost, and also just has this sort of nostalgic feeling to it. Uh, and if I had to describe, like, the message that this song is going for, it'd probably be something along the lines of, this game is bigger than the last one, which, I mean, from what I could tell, is exactly what they were going for in the first place. So I think that message really fits in terms of this song. And if you're hiring an orchestra to do it, yeah, that makes sense. You're opening up the world. You're opening up the music possibilities. Uh, this is the only one I had heard of before. And I feel like it was because of uh, tinkering around with like game of the year shows uh, back in around this time. So yeah, I, I've I've heard this one before for sure. But I mean, it's also the Sims theme, just kind of done in yeah. this Sims three style. So it's a very catchy and recognizable piece. But you've loaded up the game. From there, I mean, you got to make a sim now. So critical track number two is amazing facsimile. Great word, facsimile. <laughs> All of the... But most of the songs on the soundtrack are puns. If you're watching the video version and you look at the titles, they're all puns. All of them. Um, so, yeah. Facsimile. Really good word here. Really good poll. Uh, especially since this plays during Create a Sim. And it feels... weirdly inspiring? Almost? I don't know how else to describe it. Like that guitar part, mostly. The down, 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 down. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing kind of feels like it belongs in a montage of like a home improvement show. <laughs> where yeah. like they're, they're showing you the before and after. <laughs> uh, this doesn't feel like it should play in a character creator, but I think it fits in that character creator very well. I think the song is really catchy, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. Well, you know, anything is possible, just like with the home of your dreams on a TV show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think that's that's a good comparison there. From there, well, now you have Sims. you got to find a place for them to live. And to do that, you have to go to the map screen, where one of the songs you might hear is our critical track number three, Maps and Symbols. That is, of course, symbol spelled S-I-M-B-O-L-S. See? <laughs> uh, again, 
This plays on the map screen. And uh, honestly, I don't know what it is about this song, but it just feels quintessentially Sims to me. I don't know. And once again, I don't really have a solid wording to back that up. But uh, that choir, though, mm. is really weird. And I think that also makes it kind of fun. And then the clarinet part of this song is just, I don't know. It's a, it's a really energetic and fun song. I always found myself kind of bobbing my head to it. You don't spend a lot of time on the map screen, I feel like. So the fact that there are like three songs that could play there and this song plays there, that's a little weird to me. But I mean, whatever. This song also just sort of feels like the soundtrack of an animated comedy in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can hear that. Uh, and also, how often do you actually get the clarinet in there? Uh, you don't hear the clarinet too often on this show, so kudos for it being right there early. Yeah, and again, in The Sims? For The Sims? <laughs> At least they did a live recorded one instead of like a bad MIDI, you know? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Woodwind and brass middies are the worst. <laughs> so there's no replacement for the real thing. So from there, all right. You found a lot for them to live on. Now you need to build a house on this lot. And one of the songs you might hear during that process is our critical track number four, Simmering Mallets. This song, of course, plays during build mode. And uh, that repeating string melody, I don't know what it is about it, but it just lodges itself into my head every single time I listen. Uh, it's so ridiculously catchy, despite the fact that there's like nothing to it. It's it's just a dun 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 I don't know. It's great. It's, uh, again, there's a really weird choir part in this song, but, like, it fits The Sims, and honestly, if the song's not at least kind of bizarre, can you really say you're playing The Sims? It needs a whimsy to it. Uh, yeah. And I feel like that, that's the gist of it, and I just, I keep thinking... How different this is from Hotline Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's total opposite spectrum there. This is up there with Water Tastes Like Wine and Deus Ex, I think. <laughs> but, uh, so, you have built a house. It's a beautiful house. One problem, ain't no furniture in this house. So it's time to fix that, too. And while you are doing that, one of the songs you might hear is our final critical track, Consumerism. Simplified. Simplified. <laughs> 
as you might guess, this plays during buy mode. And, uh, hey, it's time to go shopping. This, like, feels like the score of a really old PSA film about how shopping is so important. It, it adds to the economy, son. A good free market is a strong free market. Oh my gosh, you're so right. <laughs> or, in this case, uh, you need to support the various Sims companies so that they can be super rich and they can you, you can pretend you're super rich. Like, that fits so perfectly, that sort of tone, to this, this song where it's like, buy, 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 buy all the furniture. Uh, I don't know how you can listen to the song and not be just kind of completely taken in by its sort of fun and bouncy energy at the very least. Uh, and honestly, in my opinion, you can almost hear how much fun the orchestra was having recording this song in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always a delight. Uh, you're so right with that feeling. You, that's the <laughs> perfect imagery. Uh, just like, do you want to be a good soldier of capitalism? <laughs> if you want to support the troops overseas, you need to buy our hot dogs. It fits so well. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And that fits the like tone of The Sims, where The Sims is a game that is very much, it is a world about stuff. It is about buying stuff and having stuff and working to get more stuff like animal crossing it's it's a lot like the parallels between this and animal crossing the only difference is you can't cook yet and <laughs> so yeah I, I i love this song i think it's great so heading over to our cutting room floor i don't have a story a journey to take you on for these i just like these two songs and figured they fit on the cutting room floor at the very least the first being Simple assembly. This song plays in build mode, and I kind of just like the laid back tone of the song. It's it's laid back. But then later on, it kind of turns determined sounding. It's like, let's build this house, but also let's not stress out too hard about building this house. You know what I mean? And more clarinets. And more clarinets. Never can get enough clarinets. For The Sims. And then my second track is Identity Check. This song plays during Create a Sim and isn't a pun. Who messed up? Who messed up? <laughs> Who messed? This is like one of two songs on the entire soundtrack that is not a pun. I don't get how that happened. Come on, you gotta commit to the bit. Uh, but I want to say that this song is just super catchy. I think what really sets it apart is its heavy beat. And honestly, I can hear parts of Simmering Mallets in there as well. So... I like it. So what will I never forget about The Sims 3 
I mean, I don't know. Sims exists. The Sims is one of those things where it's just like, there's nothing particularly that I would never forget about it. I enjoy playing it, but it's not like one of those quintessential parts of my gaming career. I think Sims Bustin' Out and Sims 2 were bigger parts of my childhood. And mostly the reason that I brought Sims 3 in particular is because it's the soundtrack I have listened to the most, and it's one that I kind of enjoy. Maybe one of these days I'll bring Sims 2 as well, because that game also, I remember having a pretty alright soundtrack. Who knows when that'll be? I don't know. But, uh, maybe one day. Doing research for this episode just kind of made me want to go play The Sims. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's that, I guess. Yeah. I think it's definitely notable in the sense of that orchestration. Like, Mm -hmm. having the live orchestra perform it definitely helps it feel more open, more alive. Uh, That's great. And what else can I say but woohoo. <laughs> Woohoo indeed. So <laughs> the synth wave of Hotline Miami and the delightful orchestral whimsy of The Sims 3. Great soundtracks on their own combined. I, I don't know. <laughs> A weird concoction. A weird concoction of death. <laughs> but that will do it for us this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at The Dobaga. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, also at rhymeswithasia.com. But it's that MP3 podcast version that you want over on Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. Get that MP3 podcast version on podcast storefronts around the globe, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and even on Spotify. Take it with you on a run, a walk. Um, in your car, if you're an essential worker and you're going to work, we still won't tell your boss if you're listening to conversations about great video game music. This is harder and harder to do while we're still in these COVID times. I apologize. And if you're home, I won't tell your kids. There you go. But hey, <laughs> maybe share this music with them and maybe they'll dance this instead of Baby Shark. I don't know. I'm I'm so out of touch. I don't get what's popular <laughs> with the kids these days. Uh, but For Spotify, we not only have our podcast feed of episodes, we also have a playlist on Spotify where if we talk about a song from a video game on this show and it's on Spotify, it's getting added to that big playlist. Uh, Any additions this week, Joe? Both soundtracks appear to be on Spotify. The Sims 3 is obviously easy to find because it's called The Sims 3. Hotline Miami is a little bit more complicated because it seems to be spread out among different like eps Mm. from the various artists but as far as i can tell they're all there that's a plus that is definitely good to hear and hopefully we'll be getting to some of these more bonus tracks soon uh we got the top 10 made for best of 2018 and best of 2017 but it's all about Filling out which tracks and then what gets selected for the honorable mentions and what tracks there. So we got some work to do, uh, hopefully once the school year rings out for Joe there. Joe, who are we talking about next week? Next week's going to be a weird one, guys. I will be talking about Terry Scott Taylor. I will be talking about Masaya Matsura. Yeah. It's going to get weird. And this week's going to be bizarre. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Should be fun. 
All right, Joe, let's play us out. So, as we have said many, many times, like 67 times two at this point, it's our transitions. We like to highlight a remix, whether it be from OC Remix or from YouTube or what have you. Honestly, if you'll believe it, hard to find one this week for The Sims 3, but I did manage to find a pretty good remix of The Sims 3 main theme by YouTuber Silver Knight. I think it was a good find. I enjoyed this cover a lot, so please enjoy that. Definitely some good energy to this one. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.